welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Peter Simons, your host for today. Today, we have with us Leisha Ostro, the founder and CEO of Live and Learn, a research and consulting company that specializes in the inclusion of people with lived experience. She conducts research on community-driven interventions that present safe and effective pathways to independence and empowerment. Dr. Ostro, welcome. Thank you for having me. To begin, I wanted to ask you about Live and Learn. Can you tell me more about your company? Yes. So uh, I founded Live and Learn in uh, 2015 after I finished my PhD. And uh, it was a small company um, that uh, works with different stakeholders around the country. So um, providers, administrators, policymakers, people in various different systems, but with a particular focus on always making sure to include people with lived experience of those systems in our work. So we do a mix of research and consulting projects. So the consulting work ranges from uh, small contracts with peer-run organizations that um, are required or interested in reporting their outcomes um, and looking for assistance with that to uh, working with uh, state and county mental health systems. Um, and then the research that we do is um, independently investigator-initiated research like one would do in an academic setting. Um, so we actually just got my first multi-year federal research grant, which is funded by the National Institute on Disability Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research um, to study the career and financial outcomes of people who get certified as a peer specialist. So that's a good example of of work that sort of is initiated in some ways through consulting work on the ground with people who are doing that work, working as peer specialists, hearing those experiences, working with peer-run organizations um, that employ those people, um, and then taking those, those ideas um, and those problems and, uh, and generating independent research on them. Yeah. So that, that current research, that's something that you're working on right now that you just got a, a grant for, is that right? Yeah, I'm working on it all the time right now. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're uh, at, the, at the stage of uh, submitting our IRB application. So yeah, I mean, so Live and Learn is... Um, it's a consulting company, but it also came from my desire to do academic research without the desire to be in academia, I guess I would say. So um, it's uh, it's sort of a proof of concept, I think, because uh, a lot of the times, I mean, you know, my a lot of my experience in life has been people telling me things that I can't do or I can't do it my way and that's not the way that it's done. So this is just another example, I think, of like one of those things that you don't really know until you try. and. Yeah, sometimes you have to try a lot harder when you do it your own way. But uh, yeah, I was really, I mean, I'm excited to get the grant, to work on that grant because I think the project is really important. Employment has been key to my recovery. Uh, And I think just, you know, we're just seeing all around the country in in every socioeconomic strata that uh, people struggle with meaningful work, well-paying work, all of that sort of how we spend all of our time. A lot of our time is at work um, and for a lot of people, it's not very good. So, but at the same time, it's sort of, there's a meta reflection there on my own work environment and, and what I want from my work and, and my life. So it's, uh, it was really encouraging to be able to get such a grant um, and to be able to do that work without being in an academic institution officially. 
Uh, so what, what exactly do you hope to find out through, through this research project? So we know that a lot of people are getting certified as a peer specialist in most of the states um, and that not all of them end up working in peer support. We don't really know why. In some cases, I think in some places there aren't enough jobs. In some places, the jobs aren't very good and people don't want them. Or um, in some places, people have to work in a fairly hostile environment as a peer specialist. You can say a little bit more about what, what it is to be a peer specialist and, and what exactly is entailed in that, in that job. Well, a peer specialist is sort of a newer designation for a very old form of, of the work, um, which is people providing mutual support to one another. Um, and uh, I'm sure many people reading Madden America are, are aware that sort of grassroots mutual support happens wherever you are. It's just a thing that social animals do including humans, um, and over the years has become more professionalized um, within the mental health system um, for many reasons. I think you could probably take a positive or negative view of it. Some people are not as comfortable with the peer specialist designation because it is a professionalized credential. So people who work as a peer specialist get, you know, they're required to have a certain amount of, of a certain training or selection of trainings, usually like 80 hours. Uh, and then there's some process for them to get credentialed by the state. So uh, it varies across all the states, but it could be something as simple as submitting your certificate of attendance to that training or um, taking an exam or taking an exam and then having a provisional certification and then needing to work a certain number of hours uh, in order to get a full certification. And then at that point in most of the states, um, there's some mechanism for a mental health provider organization to bill Medicaid or get reimbursed by Medicaid for tier specialist work. So this is very different than sort of like people gathering in each other's living rooms and providing support or engaging in political action. So uh, there's, I think, at least two camps. Um, I guess my perspective is that people should be paid and treated well for their work. Um, And... uh, at the same time, you know, we need to ensure that peer support, um, the way that it's carried out is in keeping with the evidence that we have. And as everyone knows, it's hard to keep the evidence to keep up with what's happening in the real world. So the other side of it, you know, so there's like the service user outcomes side of it. You know, what is peer support? Is it helping people and our peer specialists helping the people that they serve? And then the other side of that is what's happening with the workers themselves. So that's kind of the piece that I've always been interested in. Um, My dissertation was on peer-run organizations. So we surveyed all of the peer-run organizations across the country at the organizational level. So the survey was completed by the executive directors just to see how they're operating. So that's mostly, I think, what the perspective that I've taken in my work is um, the perspective of the workers. Right. So kind of how is is the work impacting the actual peer specialists who are doing the work about yeah, I mean, because, you know, you can never forget that the people who are working as peer specialists are the same as the people who are receiving services. I mean, we're all the same, but people are at a different point in their lives sometimes. But uh, many of the people who are working as peer specialists are just as marginalized and disadvantaged as the people that they're serving who are on Medicaid. Some of them, Many of them are on Medicaid themselves. So, you know, it's just a different role in the system, but I don't... A lot of challenges to those jobs. Um, so, you know, what we're hoping to find in the um, 
career outcome study is if people aren't working in peer support, well, people who are working in peer support, how's that going? And for the people who aren't, where are they working? Um, you know, are they still working in mental health? Are they working in a management level, you know, um, quote unquote, consumer affairs position? Or did they start a business? Or did they decide to go do something else? I think for some people, I mean, my hope or my hypothesis is that getting that credential for many people who've had bad experiences in education and work as I have had, um, you know, having one, one accomplishment um, can really help you realize that you can that you can do things. You're empowered to do things. So, you know, some maybe some of those people go on and get a master's in counseling or something or a PhD. <laughs> so, and then, you know, like what is for different jobs, you know, what's the level of job satisfaction? How do they experience the workplace? Um, you know, hoping to do some measurement on um, burnout, self-esteem, self-efficacy, just to understand the relationship between the work that peer specialists do, certified peer specialists do, and their outcomes in many different domains. Is there kind of a tension between like the uh, the psychiatric system that might that peer specialists might be sort of embedded in and the way that a peer specialist sees the work from coming from someone who has lived experience? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, peer specialists are on this boundary often between patients and providers. And a lot of the way that we're all situated in the world is not necessarily up to us and may even have little to do with our training and credentials. So, uh, you know, I think, I mean, there's been a decent amount of research uh, so far about the work place experiences of peer specialists, um, finding that, you know, often they are marginalized by their colleagues, you know, so people who have a different kind of credential, like psychiatrists or psychologists or social workers don't perceive peer specialist uh, workers as, as equal members of the team. Setting aside for a moment that, you know, we're separating providers from patients that uh, people feeling marginalized in their own workplace is problematic, is bad for your psychological health, regardless of the work that you do. So being a lesser member of a team um, is already bad for people. And then, you know, like layered on top of that is like previous experience of surviving the psychiatric system. Uh, I think in some cases, I mean, you, you always identify with that experience, you know? So, you know, there's like research documenting you know, that people are sort of put in the position of still being a patient or aligning with the patient perspective more while being on the provider team. Um, so it's real, they're really complicated dynamics that go on there. I'm sort of, I mean, I'm interested in like, what is there for us beyond peer support? Like, I, I always say to people like, yeah, okay, well, look, I have plenty of lived experience, but you wouldn't want me working in peer support, you know? Um, I wouldn't want to do it. It would be hard for me emotionally. I prefer to be alone with my books and my writing. So I think it's great that there has been this explosion of job opportunities in peer support because it's sort of like a first step. Like, you know, not that long ago, there was a very common belief. I'm sure people, some people still hold this belief that like people who are labeled with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia can't work. They can't like meaningfully participate in, in their own lives, let alone society. So, you know, I think like peer specialists, um, Credential is like a good first step, but I think it also, if we're not careful, can like narrow the choices that people have. Like, okay, you can work, you need to work, everybody needs to do something productive and meaningful with their life. That's part of the human condition. But like, what can you do? Not, can you be a peer specialist 
or another choice to what? Beyond disability. Those aren't very good choices because there's not really a choice. Uh, can you maybe say a little bit about how your own experience has sort of influenced the work that you do? Yeah. So um, I uh, was first hospitalized when I was 14. Um, I tried to run away from home and I didn't make it very far. And that was the solution. Although I did have a very good plan. And then I was put on um, Paxil. I was in the hospital and then released like two weeks later. And then I, um, I had a bad reaction to the Paxil. I had a manic episode and ended up back in the hospital. Um, and then after that, it was just like a series of like being removed from school and then, you know, being put on other drugs, getting off those drugs, being in the hospital, being removed from another school. Eventually, I ended up in a residential treatment facility for two and a half years. And then I graduated from there. Um, so, you know, and in Massachusetts, where I grew up, um, the those kinds of uh, special education institutions are co-funded by the local school system in the state. And they award you a diploma somewhat arbitrarily, I think, because I don't remember like doing any coursework um, from your home uh, high school. So, uh, and then I was told that, um, so, you know, my, everyone in my family has gone to college. My parents both have doctoral degrees. So it's sort of like an expectation that I would go to college, but also this um, very clear message that I would not be able to go to a normal college, that I had to go to like a special education school. Simultaneously, my, um, I had been living in the residential and um, I was on four or five psychiatric drugs. My parents took me to court and got guardianship of me when I was 18. Um, so I lost like all of my legal rights as an adult and I had a court order for antipsychotics. Um, so, and then I was on disability and um, I did actually, so uh, well, part of that story was that um, I wasn't allowed to leave the state of Massachusetts. Massachusetts happens to have a lot of very good colleges, but uh, it wouldn't have been my choice. When I was 14, before I was hospitalized, I wanted to go to Berkeley out here. So uh, I applied to a couple of schools in Massachusetts. I did end up going to, I went to Clark University, which is actually a perfectly good school. So I was there for, so my junior year, um, I started drinking a lot when I was 21. I was still on a lot of psych drugs. Um, and uh, I had like a depressive episode. Um, I was actually doing fine in my classes despite not really going to school. But um, like I continue, I've continued to struggle with like with depression, not so much mania, although I'm not even sure I really know what that is in like in the context of um, mind altering drugs and substances and adolescence and God knows what. So uh, I took a medical leave for depression when I was a junior in college um, and I uh, went to like a partial day program. And uh, then when I wanted to return to school, the school basically asked me not to. They said that school wasn't for me, which seemed very clear at that point to me. Like, obviously, school's not for me. At that point in my like, since I was 14, I'd been in six different schools, you know. So I believed that. And I dropped out. Um, and I was on disability and I kind of like had jobs here and there, like working in a daycare or working as a nanny or working in retail, like, and nothing, no job would ever last more than a month. And so, you know, my parents and my providers and all that would, you know, kind of reiterate the message that like work wasn't for me. And I like internalized that. I really believe that. 
which is ironic now because I would say people often identify me with my work. So uh, I was on, I was out of school and living on disability and all that for about a year and a half. And then, um, and I mean, I still thought I was like, I'm still smart. I was like, there's gotta be a way around this, you know, like I don't need school. Plenty of people don't go to school. Bill Gates, uh, Bill Gates was like a big person at the time, you know, it's like early 2000. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg didn't graduate from Harvard at the same time as me. So, but I'm not one of those people. So um, eventually I realized that like I had to go to school to do anything that I wanted to do. And, you know, like I had had the, like the thought um, many times in my earlier life about that many people, other like psychiatric survivors have shared, like, this is happening to me. How do I stop this from happening to people in the future? Like, what can I do? So, you know, like I thought about working in mental health, but I always wanted to be a writer, like a fiction writer. So I went back to school and like continued my, I had a major in psychology when I had started. And um, as soon as I was in school, I was able to get like research assistant jobs and, um, and I loved it. Um, and I went and did like an adult independent study bachelor's program at Leslie University in Cambridge. and. Um, and I was like able to design my own courses. So I did courses like on mental health policy and the mental health system, which is actually not something that you really, that people get to study in an undergraduate psychology degree ever. But like, I really found my passion in like looking at things from a system level rather than an individual level or sort of, you know, psychology, um, the psychology of the individual just never really spoke to me as something that was that important. Or it was not like reflective of my experience. So then I finished my bachelor's and I started working as a mental health policy researcher. I guess uh, all that to say that I've had a lot of very painful experiences in, in education and employment, but you know, people can always change. Those things have been important to me. And um, I think having those experiences gives me a lot of, like brings a lot of empathy to my work. I feel a lot of empathy. I think that's like something we don't really talk about with people who work like at the in the in the level of the system that I do which is like relatively disconnected from people who are receiving services is like that there's like an emotional connection to the work still that you're sort of re-experiencing trauma all of the time even though you're just dealing with like words and numbers and bureaucrats and occasionally like activists and stuff so uh yeah I mean I just feel like I continue to do my work so that what happened to me doesn't happen to anybody else. And I continue to have horrible experiences actually in employment and education that, that reinvigorate that mission all the time. So even now you still have, have those experiences coming up? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the world of work is complicated. It's where we spend like a majority of our waking hours. It's, um, you know, like we, live in a society that uh emphasizes like money and work you have to i mean basically everybody has to work the people who don't have to work are probably are are unhappy in their own life so you know if we have such an integral connection to this thing that we do with our time i think yeah it's going to be painful sometimes i mean here's like right this is where it's a catch-22 it's like if you have a personal connection to your work well then you're lucky because you get to do something every day that you care about and that itself is rewarding. It makes you happy to be alive. And at the same time, if you're really personally connected to your work, there's an opportunity to be hurt. You know, it's yin and yang. So how did you go from sort of graduating and uh, beginning to do mental health policy work to founding your own company? 
let's see. So I worked at Human Services Research Institute um, in Cambridge after I finished my bachelor's. And then uh, while I was there, I got a master's in public policy from Brandeis University. And uh, while I was in my master's program, I applied for the PhD program at Johns Hopkins. Um, but I had actually, when I finished my bachelor's, I, a professor of mine at Leslie had told me about Johns Hopkins. It's the only school of public health that has a department of mental health. And I really liked the sound of it. So I applied and I didn't get in. I didn't even know like what, you know, like what I was applying to, but I like, I continued to want that. So um, I realized that like to get a PhD in the social sciences with the exception of psychology, you typically have to get a master's degree. So, or you have to be the kind of superstar that I'm not. So I kind of like got the master's degree just to get the PhD, but it ended up being like one of my most valuable educational experiences. Like everything I know about public speaking, I learned from that master's program. Um, And it's astounding how much you actually need public speaking skills in life. So then um, I did manage to get admitted to Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, which even when I applied the second time, I still didn't know that it's like a very good school, that it's the number one school of public health in the country. So and people kept telling me I wasn't going to get in. And I'm like, how do you know I'm not going to get in? Um, so I got accepted. And, uh, and uh, again, you know, like, I feel like it's basically public knowledge, hopefully, um, that Johns Hopkins is like a brutal academic environment. Um, I mean, it's really challenging. Like I've been through some stuff in my life and that was like for a while a source of trauma for me. I mean, like sleepless nights, like nightmares that you're like, I wasn't sure ever really like, did that happen in an exam or was that a dream? I just like felt like my first year, like I was really living in this like no man's land between like nightmares and reality. And then in my last year or second to last year, I started the lived experience research network. And I'm sure many readers of Bound America have probably heard that. And uh, so that was really like my first business, but um, it was a nonprofit. And I mean, it was like really like a good example of like what you don't know can hurt you. I mean, you're never going to know everything about running a business or starting a business. I think most of the people who start businesses don't know anything about business or you probably wouldn't do it. It's like PhD school that way. But uh, yeah, we really didn't know anything about... Uh, I mean, you know about the work and you think that like the important thing is whether people are going to pay you for your work, but that's not the important thing about starting a business. I mean, yes, there has to be like some kind of market for your work or you don't have a business, but um, it's the devil's in the details, you know, like in like the personnel policies and the contracts and like the budgeting and the division of labor and whatever. So that didn't work out and it like didn't work out like in a very bad way. Um, and I had to resign my position like the day before my dissertation defense. I wasn't forced to resign, but it was like an untenable situation. So that was like a really major trauma for me. I like quickly negotiated for um, funding to go do a postdoc at uh, UC San Francisco. Because I wanted to, I mean, I had this agenda, right, from when I was 14 that I was going to go to Berkeley. <laughs> Um, so I could, I couldn't quite negotiate with Berkeley, but, um, I did work it out with UC San Francisco and I moved out there. Um, and then I knew like a little bit about having a business. Like I knew how to use QuickBooks and like, um, you know, like file the paperwork, with the IRS. So I started live and learn just like, I don't know, some gut instinct or something. 
because I missed it, I guess. I liked having a business, um, just everything that goes into it. I liked working for myself, but I've had all this ambivalence about, about where to work. Like I felt like, well, um, yeah, I tried starting something myself and that didn't work out. And so I should just be in academia, but I don't really want to be in academia. And I never really knew where I wanted to work. Like, I just, I feel like when you get a PhD in the social sciences, if you have the, you know, like the right skills, so you can work in government, you can work in nonprofit, you can work in academia. Um, and I didn't want to do like any of it. I was really, really burnt out at that point. I always tell people like, even if you don't want to be in academia, like, do a postdoc after your PhD because you're going to need the rest. Like you're going to need a big nap. So at the same time, actually, I was, I had started coming off all my psych drugs in the second year of my PhD, between the second and third year. I got off like Risperdal, uh, Lamictal, Welbutrin uh, fairly easily. And then, I mean, like I white knuckled through it. I mean, I was like emotionally unstable, but I was fine. I don't know. I was used to bearing my emotions. That's part of PhD school. So, but then I still had the clonopin. And you, I mean, clonopin is everybody knows like a nightmare to get off of. It took, you know, two years. So like while I was in my postdoc and I was like burnt out and depressed and like had technically started a company, then I finished getting off my clonopin. And then it's like, you're really, the clonopin, like, yes, getting off of it, titrating down is really hard, but it's the time after that you're off of it that is, is pretty bad. So I didn't, sleep for a while. Um, and, uh, then my postdoc funding ran out after a year and I couldn't negotiate for any more. And I mean, like I had like opportunities to do things like working for other people. I just, it's just, I can't do other people's work. I mean, that's a horribly privileged thing to say, but, uh, it's just, it's just like that experience that I had when I was like 21 and I dropped out of college and I had to work at the express and like, they told me that I was folding the jeans wrong. And I'm like, I don't want to fold the jeans the way you want me to fold them. Like, I just like, I, this is a better way, you know, or whatever. So that's how I felt about my postdoc options. And I would just be supporting somebody else's enterprise, you know? So then I kind of, I guess, couch surfed, you know, in LA for a bit with family and friends and like tried to work things out. And it just also felt like this horrible, like overwhelming shame that like I had like I had already failed in my life, right? Like starting when I was like 14 to 26, like when I got off of guardianship. And then I like miraculously like got it together and I got a PhD from Johns Hopkins and I proved everybody wrong. And then like, I like tripped and like fell into like an even deeper hole of failure. And you're like, well, I mean, how many times do you can fall out of that hole? You know, like maybe they're really right about me. So, but what are you going to do? You know, like you just keep going. So I kept trying and like, I got in the academic job market and um, I mean, I like technically I had good options. I mean, that's part of it, right? It's like where your expectations are versus your experience, you know? And if you just lower your expectations, you could have a perfectly good life. I mean, that's like the core of Buddhism. So um, it's not really for me necessarily. So, you know, like I kept going, I was sort of hustling for live and learn and like also on the academic job market and like got some offers and had some good opportunities, but I really wanted to be in California. I just had to be here, you know? I mean, I don't know if it was like something that I didn't want to give up because it had been like been this dream or and like, and I didn't want people to be right about me or if it was something I really wanted or whatever, but I was like, I'm not leaving California. So, uh... I just kept going. And then um, I think it was New Year's Day of 2016. Like I called my dad and uh, 
I was like, I think I'm like, I think I'm done with academia. Like I just want to work for myself. And he was like, that's fine. Like if you want to do that, but you have to really do it, you know? So then I did, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, like I had to drain my retirement, which I only had a very little bit because I'd only worked like a couple years of my life earlier. Uh, and you know, like just like pinching pennies and whatever. And, uh, then I moved down here to San Luis Obispo and like kind of dropped out for a little bit. I mean, still had my company, but I was like, you know, like, I don't know that I want to define myself by work anymore. Not out of like a bitterness, but just like, why, like why define myself by work? Um, you know, like I did a lot of hard work, like, um, maybe there's other things that I want to do. So yeah, I mean, it was like really touch and go for basically the first four or five years of live and learn. Um, like not sure it's going to work out still like really good being hard on myself about like, maybe I should be in academia. Maybe I should just do what people tell me to do. And like, uh, you know, stop doing this. Why am I even doing this? And, you know, there were like times where, uh, I was imminently going to be out of money. Um, like unable to pay my rent. And I was like, well, I guess I like, I better get another job, you know? Um, I mean, I wanted to stay here and there aren't really jobs here. So, and I don't really have any other skills. It's a sad thing that you could be like, people would call you Dr. Ostro, but you have to like actually no skills to get a job. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It's then, you know, like as soon as I was about to run off my cliff, so your cliff is in a, in business is like when you're going to run out of money. So, uh, yeah, like a month left or something. And, um, and then like contracts started coming in. I mean, I started like begging for real, you know, like, I really need this. I'll do whatever you want. You know, I'll do data analysis. Yeah. And then, uh, I don't know. It's just kept going. What are some of the first sort of contracts that you got? The first ones? So yeah, like in 2015. Yeah. I mean, there's always like some goodwill in the world somewhere. Someone helps you. So like Campro, the California Association of Mental Health Peer Run Organizations, that was my at the time it was my biggest contract. So they gave me a $40,000 contract for the year to help them um, on some products that they were contracted to for the state of California. So Sally Zinman is in my heart and for many reasons, but uh, so Mark Salzer at Temple university has also always been there for me. So I've had contracts with his research center for a number of years. And um, he's actually a partner on the uh, certified peer specialist grant that we have now. I have a consulting contract with um, with another small business in California that contracts with um, the State Department of Healthcare Services to um, uh, do quality reviews of the county Medicaid mental health plans, which is like totally out, kind of outside of my normal stuff. Like I'm always like I work with like peer run organizations here and there, and you know, like on our alternative mental health stuff. And this is like very much like this is mainstream mental health at the county level like Medicaid funded mental health services. And it's so great because it's just like, I see the system like in its entirety in a way that I don't normally get to see in my work. Like you've seeing it up close, but also like, like I'm not there really as like a, I mean, I'm always a survivor researcher, but I'm not really, that's not really why I'm there. Um, I'm just sort of there to like, make sure they're complying with their Medicaid, whatever. But you see why like us, those of us who work in alternative mental health, like why it's so hard to, accomplish anything <laughs> you're just you're really up against like a massive bureaucracy where like even the people who work there you know like 
it just makes it very clear that like there's a system at work, you know, and the systems, yes, are comprised of individuals, but like we're all kind of victims of our own systems. It's something that you, uh, that you want to improve about sort of the way those systems work and, and live and learn does some sort of policy advocating work. Is that? Yeah. I mean, we don't really do, I try to stay away from advocacy specifically. I guess. I don't know. I feel like other people label me as an advocate sometimes, but um, I wouldn't say that there's any advocacy like apart from research. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, I don't know. I think sometimes when you are looking at different evidence or evidence in a different way uh, that challenges systems, you can be labeled as an advocate, even though what you're saying is just as factually correct as what anyone else is saying. Um, So like, Second story, peer respite in Santa Cruz. They've had a lot of issues over the years with the community fighting them. But second story is like the site of like the best research that we have on peer respite. So it was conducted by um, Bevan Croft at HSRI. Uh, so there was like a, I saw, I was in Santa Cruz a couple of weeks ago and there, the local news did a story on the house and, you know, this had all kinds of stuff like um, the neighbors complaining about people like, you know, peeing in the yard and drinking in public and whatever, like stuff that there's no evidence that that's true, that that stuff goes on there. And then, you know, and then someone at the end that one of the neighbors at the end, like had the audacity to say, oh, the county is funding this and they have no, with no evidence that it works. That's not true at all, you know, but if you're like advocate for that perspective, it's like, you're an advocate, you know, but that person somehow is like, is correct, even though they're totally incorrect. So in a way, sort of having a, Having documented evidence that uh, that is that is con- that contradicts the way that the community is seeing that. Yeah, I mean, so that to me is like um, a big priority of my work is um, is representing other alternative perspectives. I guess mm-hmm. marginalized perspectives, mm-hmm. you know, from people on the ground, Either about how we're you know helping ourselves or helping each other. Stuff that doesn't you know if you don't if you don't ask certain questions of certain people, then you'll never you'll never know. I'm still like early in my career, you know, but I obviously get on myself about how I haven't done enough. But um, so, you know, a lot of my work is like observational, cross-sectional, like large-scale surveys. And, um, but I, I like that work because and I've got a number of different topics. And I like it because um, it's sort of like the first step in elevating a perspective, you know, like using quantitative data, bringing something into the conversation so that we can do more research. I feel like I haven't, haven't yet been as successful in getting to the next stage, but also maybe that's not my role, you know? What do you think that next stage looks like? What would it look like to elevate the research? Um, like, I think the study that we're doing now on career outcomes is a good start. I mean, first of all, because it's longitudinal, so you can answer more questions with longitudinal data than you can with cross-sectional data. Um, so I'm really excited about that. It's my first longitudinal study. So, and then obviously you get into the world of like um, experimental studies. Experimental studies are really hard. We've been, I've um, been working with um, a colleague at USC for years to get a study funded on um, the effectiveness of peer respites uh, compared to other kinds of crisis diversion. And uh, like, I mean, we've submitted that application four or five times. It's like a joke now, you know? Um, and they always come back with something about the methods because we're not doing a randomized control trial because part of the study question is that, so peer respites are um, peer run programs in a home-like environment um, where people can go if they're starting to feel like they might be in a crisis or in some cases, you know, diverted from 
a hospital or ER. So part of the theory of how they work is that they're available to people in the community so that you refer yourself there versus an emergency room or an inpatient unit where you sort of have to be funneled into the system and and have someone assess you and it has things have to be at a certain level, right? Like people, um, I mean, I've had this experience earlier in my life of sort of like having to get escalated before you can get help, you know, it's a fail first system and all that. So, you know, peer respites are an alternative to that because they're there for people when you know that you need something. Right. You, you get to make So where do you randomize people from? You know, it's not, I mean, I think sometimes the issue of like randomization has come up in consumer survivor research because it's like um, people view it as like people are forced into treatment. Like I'm not as concerned about that because you're not. I mean, obviously you have to be consent to be in a research study and part of your consent for a randomized control trial is that you may be in the experimental condition or not. And you can always leave the study if you don't like um, how it goes. So there's no issue of forced treatment and randomization as far as I'm concerned. So anyway, so we haven't been able to get it funded because we're not doing a randomized control trial. If we did a randomized control trial, we wouldn't be doing a study of a peer respite. So I don't know. I mean, one day I figure we'll keep that proposal in the bottom drawer and eventually people will want that research or someone else will do it or I don't know. Hard to. There's such a pushback against doing that study. Well, I mean, I understand the critique from a methodological perspective because, you know, then the issue is how do you know whether the change that you're seeing is really attributable to using a respite versus not, you know, and there's like, I don't want to do garbage science either. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, like different observational methods that you can use to control for some of those other variables. They're never going to be as good as randomization, but, you know, like we have to, I think, use some of those other, like you have to use alternative statistical methods if you want to do research on alternative services, maybe. You know, that's why those methods exist is to, is to study things that are difficult to study. And it's, I mean, it's, it's common to see in research studies that compare what's already happening at different sites and how different sites are, are, are doing treatment yeah. differently. And, that, and that's not randomized. So I'm just surprised that there's such a pushback against yeah, I mean, some of it I think is like um, just that it's very competitive to get research funded nowadays. Like, you know, 30, 40 years ago, I think there was just a lot more money for services research. There's not money for services research now. There's not money for research in general. Um, you know, you can look to the people that we've elected for that. And then you can look to the people that elected them. Uh, yeah, and the other issue is, you know, like the more, I mean, I think academic research is really all about like standing on the shoulders of giants, you know. So it's like incremental steps towards um, towards progress. And um, if you take too far a leap, reviewers will have trouble seeing the value in it. They can make a safer bet on something that's a more incremental change. And that's kind of the way it works. I mean, so the, the career outcome study, while I'm thrilled to be doing it, my original idea, I wanted to do a study on people who get certified as a peer specialist and become self-employed. So like there are people who work and have like a private practice, um, I, you know, and we all know many of them, you know, they're sort of like working off the grid or whatever, but they get paid to provide peer counseling to people um, in various different ways or to families or whatever or in the community. Uh, and they're self-employed, right? They, get, they don't work for anyone. They work for themselves. So 
So I kind of wanted to look at like business models for that and, and how those people experience their work. And did they leave peer support because, you know, the environment wasn't very good and they wanted to work on their own or they weren't able to do like authentic mutual peer support in an, in an agency so they're doing it on their own. But then like, how does that work? Cause people are paying them directly. All of those questions. Then the counsel from my mentors who I'm glad I listened to is like, well, you have to take a smaller step first, like first looking at peer specialists in general um, and they're, you know, where they're working other than peer support. And then assuming that some subset of those people are self-employed, then I'll have data on that. And then I can write a grant application to do that study. So it's like maybe four studies down the line. I don't know. You have to be patient. I'm curious if there's a, is there a change that you would like to see in the way that our mental health systems work? Yes. I mean, lots. But at the same time, when you start thinking about it, you're like, oh, God, you just kind of like have to, I don't know, like lean into your nihilism or something because it's overwhelming. You know, part of it is like a problem with identification, like um, the people that get funneled into the mental health system and stuck there. Not that anybody deserves to be stuck there, but um, we don't like have really good ways of individualizing our approaches for different people. Um, you know, like some, you know, the, the the way that I think like research is going, there's, you know, a lot of people wanting to do research on like individualized approaches, like personalized medicine based on your genetics and other um, objective characteristics. But like, we don't even really do a good job of listening to people, you know? And at the same time, I think there's, a lot of good reasons sometimes not listening to not to listen to people like uh, the system isn't designed to do that. There's lots of different consequences for the way that we treat people, and you never really know what's the right thing to do. I mean, I think it's like parenting, right? Like, I guess that's why it's paternalistic. <laughs> like, you don't really know. You never really know. Like, everyone, you're going to screw up. We're all going to screw up. What we can do, I mean, listening to people is a good idea, uh, trying different things, not being so attached to the way that we do things. Um, yeah. But, you know, a lot of people that work in the mental health system are really burnt out. Like, I, you know, like I was saying, I do this, uh, this contract with the state, essentially. And um, we always do an interview with the frontline staff. And, like, I feel like the frontline staff are often, like, just like the most rambunctious group. They're just, like, dying for someone to listen to them which is ironic, you know, and that's what I mean. Like things that I never get to hear. Like I'm always looking from the service user perspective, like, you know, like, how are you, you know, able to advocate for yourself? Like, but then, yeah, you look just like, you know, one, one tangentially related group, another stakeholder group. And like, they feel the same way. It's obviously, I think much worse for people who are, their lives are entrenched in the mental health system versus just their jobs. But like I said, you know, work is an important part of your day. There's a way that being in this system, whether you're on the side of being a, a worker in the system or someone with lived experience of the system, you're either way, there's a, there's a sort of way that the system burns you out. Yeah, but it's, I mean, the same for like people at an administrator level. I don't know. It's, uh, it's hard. This is where like I started to start to feel like, oh God, we just have too many people. Things are too complicated. If they're not complicated, we're bored. I don't know. I do think that like, I think that peer support, yeah, has been, I mean, in some ways a victim of its own success and is a great thing to have introduced to systems. Like, I think that, uh, yes, there are some things that go wrong or have gone wrong or could be better about the ways that peer support has been integrated into mental health systems. 
But at the same time, I think it's such a benefit to people who are using services who really need someone to connect with that um, it's just about figuring it out at this point. So sort of figuring out what the best way to, to implement peer support is? or Yeah, I mean, peer support, self-help is just slightly different. So you would you would like it if the if the mental health systems allowed for more use of peer support and sort of more uh, avenues for self help. Yeah, I guess. I, know, I feel like that's a statement I'm going to regret eventually saying, but um, <laughs> I didn't say it. I just agreed. Uh-huh. <laughs> I plead the fifth. Yeah, more. I don't know. More. You always have to be careful with more. You know, it's like more. How exactly? I think things have gotten a lot better in mental health systems. I mean, you know, someone said to me years ago, like, you know, like if it wasn't for all the advocacy that, you know, um, the people had done prior to me, like I would have ended up in a long-term institution, you know, and now like those places basically don't exist. There's so few people um, that are subject to that kind of treatment on a long-term basis. So I think that's a huge improvement. At the same time, it's sort of like the net has like gotten shallower, but wider you know, and a lot of people get wrapped up in the system that don't need to be there. But then I also think that like, um, like the work that Madden America does and sort of broadening awareness and like um, making people realize that their experience, that they're not alone in their experiences, you know, for parents and um, things like that, that uh, is helpful for, for also changing this much larger mental health system that we have now. All right. Well, thank you very much. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Well, it's been great to, to talk to you as well. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.